Creativity seems to have been thriving over the past few weeks. In spite of all the stress and anxiety of this testing time, many of us have more time on our hands and fewer distractions. Whether it's baking, cooking, crafting, or in my case, gardening, we've all been focusing on what we can get outside and create. And that's what I love about gardening. It's hopeful. Most gardeners are optimistic, looking to the weeks and months ahead. You can't beat the feeling of getting your hands dirty, getting in contact with the earth, and knowing you're planting something for the future. I'm Chris Young, editor of The Garden magazine, the RHS's monthly publication for members. And this is The Garden Podcast. We'll be meeting people who, like me, are passionate about nurturing and creating comforting green spaces. My guests have all been featured in the May issue of our magazine, so today we're delving deeper to find out more. First up, it's a self-titled hortrepreneur and plant lover who knows a thing or two about one particular plant. Now, try and guess what he's talking about. Usually five-petaled, they're kind of a little bit ruffled, always in very tropical colours. So imagine a pack of Starburst sweets. They're always in those shades. I would recommend nasturtiums to anybody, really. They're bright, they're colourful, they're cheerful, and they're so easy. My name is Michael Perry, also known as Mr. Plant Geek, and I've been interested in plants since, oh, since I was about five years old. I grew up growing nasturtiums and lots of different hardy annuals. I've also had a career in the industry for about 20 years working with Thompson & Morgan, who actually bred a lot of new nasturtiums. And I spent a lot of time not only in the breeding program, but also visiting a lot of breeders in Europe. Well, nasturtiums are quite recognisable, really, because they tend to be one of the very first plants that somebody grows. They're really easy to grow from seed. They have these really cool-looking leaves that look like water lily pads. I would say one of my earliest memories of nasturtiums was picking up a packet of nasturtium seed at the local garden centre, and it was nasturtium climbing mixed. This variety has been around for so many years, and I was fascinated in the fact that you could grow something that is like six, seven feet tall in a single season. And ever since I was a child, I've been obsessed with summer flowering climbers, such as nasturtium climbing mix. And it was one of the first things I grew. And it just kind of grew from there, really. And I remember moving on to the smaller types. So I think Tom Thumb was probably one of the first ones, which is one of the dwarf nasturtiums. Whirlybird, also Tip Top series. Nasturtium kind of basically means nose twisting. So that is kind of relating to the fact that they smell similar to watercress. And watercress actually has the Latin name nasturtium, officinale. So the fragrance is kind of a bit divisive, a little bit like Marmite. I tend to like it, though, because it's kind of peppery, a little bit spicy, but also with a sweet layer. So it's a very interesting fragrance. And in Victorian times, it was used to muffle bad smells. 
but it is a lovely fragrance. You know, sweet layers of spice, very complex. Nasturtiums have been used a lot over the years and in different countries. I believe in the US they were first introduced as a salad crop and every part is edible. Not that every part you would necessarily use in the kitchen, but of course the roots are edible, not necessarily useful, but the foliage is, which has this light peppery kind of fragrance and taste. You've then got the flowers, which have that very gentle kind of spice to them. And of course, very decorative for salads, decorating cakes as well. But also the seeds are very interesting because the unripe seeds can be pickled in the same way as capers. So don't leave them too long. Pick them when they're very, very young because the older they get, the more peppery they get. And it's a kind of mustardness that really gets up your nose. So you really need to use them with caution. And of course, pickling kind of tones down that kind of fragrance and flavor a little bit. But nasturtiums are, actually, they include 130 milligrams of vitamin C per 100 grams. So they're pretty good for you as well. And that is the same amount as parsley. We haven't even touched on the fact that growing nasturtiums in the veg garden is great because they attract pollinating insects. They're also a really good kind of trapping crop. So if you grow them alongside your cabbages, then the cabbage white are going to go to the nasturtium rather than your cabbages. So it's almost, it can be a sacrificial crop. I don't have a favorite, but there is a nasturtium for almost every place in the garden. And people might not realize this because a lot of people approach them and just think there's some, you know, easy throwaway, hardy annual, just throw and sow, that's it. But really, you can plan well with nasturtiums. So firstly, the climbing mixture that I've talked about, this can give you six feet of color on an ugly fence or screening, you know, super, super easy. And then a few years ago, uh, Sahin Breeding Company in the Netherlands brought out a newer variety called Troika as a hanging basket nasturtium. So this is one that is not quite as lengthy as a climbing form, but kind of, you know, perhaps giving you a trail of about three feet, but kind of gently cascading. So now you can grow nasturtiums in a basket, but you've also got ranges with spots, kind of marbling, pickety, and yeah, I guess also different colours. There's some really nice, almost white varieties, so milkmaids, and also black velvet, which is almost black. So you can always have a black and white nasturtium garden. In fact, there's probably every color of the rainbow apart from the blues and green. My top tips for growing nasturtiums would be don't mollycoddle them because <laughs> they won't respond to that. They really don't need it. Nasturtiums traditionally, they grow on poor soil, you know, poor neglected soil, ideally a little bit moist, but don't go giving them a rich nitrogen rich kind of enhanced soil you know that isn't required you can grow them in partial shade but remember you won't get as many flowers in shade and the leaves will generally be a bit bigger but that doesn't mean you couldn't grow them beneath trees and shrubs and just create this leafy canopy that covers the ground but just don't expect the flowers the flowers will come in a more sunny position on a poor soil but if you only want them for one season make sure you take the seed heads off quick steps at the end of the summer because they do seed themselves quite readily. 
Why would I encourage people to grow nasturtiums? I think because it's a brilliant entry level plant, but it's actually more than that. It is suitable for everyone because it's like this whole Pandora's box of color and joy. This is unapologetic color. This is just making you happy, giving you that lovely, sweet, spicy fragrance. You know, a plant that you can grow in the kitchen garden, in the flower garden, hanging baskets. There's, there's no way you cannot plant a nasturtium. Nasturtiums certainly are one of those plants that can divide opinion, but I've always had a rather soft spot for them. They don't stop flowering, they taste rather delicious, and they're really good for insects. So for me, nasturtiums get the thumb up. If that's whetted your appetite, don't miss Michael's article in May's magazine. It's bursting with even more nasturtium tips and tricks, plus some beautiful pictures of the fiery flowers. It's fair to say that like so many in the publishing world, schedules and plans have had to be constantly revised of late. But this issue still has all that you'd expect from the Garden magazine. It's got gardens galore, from a dramatic French coastal sculpture garden all the way to a Perthshire alpine garden. It's got horticultural heroes celebrating those lovely shrubs and small trees of Cornus Cusa, the dogwood. Or the false indigo article, all about baptisias. They're a bit like elegant lupins. And because we're all at home so much more, we've expanded our advice pages, helping you grow at home. One thing we're really passionate about at the garden is reducing the amount of plastic we use. Last spring, we switched our magazine wraps away from plastic to recycled paper. As a result, we'd save making 5.25 million items of single-use plastics a year. David Ware shares this green approach. He's one of the founders of Edible Culture, a nursery that believes plants and the materials around them should be as organically, locally and ethically produced as possible. We decided about a year, year and a bit ago that we would try selling plastic-free. We've always been peat-free as a business and we've, always, uh, we've never used pesticides on the site. It's about continuing that and also working with companies that we like, so companies like Melcor. We work with a few sister nurseries for, for other stock that we can't grow here ourselves. And also looking after our staff and training staff as well is really important. And I think the main thing is coming into work and actually enjoying what we do. The environmental element of that was very much, we were tired of dishing out polythene bags for peat and plant pots that we never knew what happened to them. And we decided, no, we want to change and we want to really enjoy what we do and not feel guilty for sort of dishing out this stuff. That's what's really kept us experimenting and trying new things. And I think our customer base really like it. So tell me, what about the customers coming through? Because you're growing these beautiful, healthy, well-grown plants and clearly there's a demand for them and you're not using plastic and you're growing and selling on um, much more environmentally friendly lines. Do you think that you share the same principles as your customers or do you, do you feel evangelical about it or do you actually just want to help people go along that journey slowly? I think our customer base, quite a few of them are advocates for us. I mean, they get out there and they tell their friends, they tell their friends and we're not evangelical because we're realistic. I mean, we still use plastic. We use it as a tool within the business. We're not perfect with what we do. 
they are so switched on. I'm always amazed, actually. They know about peat-free. They know about plastic use and horticulture. You know, they're interested. And it kind of makes sense because people who garden love nature and they love the mm. environment. And they don't like having to try to get rid of bags, plastic bags for compost use and piles of pots in their shed. So, you know, they are, they're very conscious of the story. And they're very forgiving. I mean, because what we're doing is quite labour intensive. So today, I mean, I've probably dished out about 30 bags of compost and, and that's me shoveling them into bags. So they accept the extra time and effort it takes to not use or waste material. So they are very forgiving. And what about trade supplies, David? In the article that Francine Raymond has written for us, she talks about the Leviathan horticultural industry and can be a bit slow to change. What sort of ways are you working with suppliers differently? Are they being challenged by the way that you're requesting and selling things? Or do you find that most of your suppliers are already up for some change? Uh, some are. Uh, but there are, I mean, like today I had a tool delivery from a company and it was absolutely I mean, we've said to them, please don't send so much plastic, but it was tools were like covered in plastic and pointlessly wrapped and wrapped. And I find that really frustrating. And so what do you do, David? Do you phone them up and give feedback or do you change supply? I mean, how do you do that from a commercial point of view? Well, unfortunately, I mean, their tools are brilliant and they're the last proper tool manufacturer in the UK. So we want to keep using not just ones that say they're British and then sort of get the tools made in China or India, which is fair play to them, but... We do say to them, please, can you look at this? So we have contacted them. So tell me, just to finish off, because it's so interesting talking to you and, and learning from people like you. And as you've referenced, you know, you're, you're a small outfit, but actually that makes you pretty nimble and you're able to try things differently and do things differently. What's your vision or hope maybe for the next few years, um, either for yourselves or for the horticultural industry from an environmental point of view? Well, for us as a business, I think it's to keep going, keep experimenting, really sort of pin down a few sort of things that we're still kind of looking at. We still have a problem with large pots. We have to do it like a deposit scheme for pots for fruit trees. There isn't really anything out there yet that we can either grow in or that we feel comfortable. So we pay people to bring pots back, which is uh, not perfect really. But for horticulture in general, I think it's about, I'd like to see less of the greenwash less of nice packaging, but more actual practical solutions for things. And a sort of a real, I find that really frustrating when companies claim their products are green, but you sort of lift the lid a bit and you actually recognise that it's not really that different. They're just trying to protect their market share. That's what I'd like to see. It's always good to hear from someone else wanting to make the gardening industry green in more ways than one. This is something I've been thinking about while gardening recently, and much of what our columnist Sally Nex wrote in the magazine last year has really been useful. But most of what I've been doing lately is about reusing and recycling. I've been making some quite shallow raised beds, but I've saved some old fence posts for that, and I've just been reusing those. And also pallets. I'm a bit of a hoarder when it comes to wood, and I've been collecting pallets, and I'm now going to be using and making those into compost bins. So there's lots of small ways that we can all help improve and reduce our impact on the environment. We at The Garden Magazine want to help brighten your time in isolation. We're still here for you, and we're working extra hard to make sure that our magazine is as informative, inspiring and exciting as ever. 
In fact, we've produced a special supplement which is on the RHS website, exclusively for members, which celebrates all about growing your own. I wanted to check in with the team to see how they are finding working from home while they're living in isolation. I'm Philip Clayton and I'm Deputy Editor on The Garden magazine. So my name's Julie Hollibone and I'm the Editorial Projects Manager on The Garden magazine. I'm Jeremy Kirk, I'm sub-editor for The Garden. Our job is, and I've been doing this for sort of like more than 20 years now, is to produce the best gardening magazine in the world on behalf of our members. If you don't get a buzz when it comes out in print, you open up a printed copy, then you shouldn't be in the business. Yes, I have a garden, and actually I think it's not looking too bad. It's looking very spring-like. The apple tree is just coming into blossom. If I'm at home, I would like to be out there all the time, so it's very tempting, but I am doing my work as well. (laughs) The magazine's based in Peterborough, and I live in a terraced Victorian house, so from my window I can see my garden, which is one of the big things in my life. So I can see at the moment, I can see Rosa Banksyi with its yellow flowers uh, dripping down from the front wall and I can see uh, Viburnum starting to flower. That's out the front window. And then if I look out the back, I can see obviously all the way down my garden, there's the last magnolia still flowering and the flowers on uh, Rosa Canary Bird, a yellow single flowered rose looking amazing and new growth on Aces as well, looking really attractive so it's a nice time to be at home (laughs) absolutely the best thing in the world is a daphne early in the year coming out in flower with its gorgeous scent absolutely adore daphne's you can't beat them i'm a sucker for anything with really deep blue and that includes like some ceanothus very few plants have that really deep blue so i love them but my favorite plant i reckon if you're in a hot country is bougainvillea Oh, they're just gorgeous, aren't they? They grow like weeds, don't they? My favourite is probably the old-fashioned or even the modern pinks. When I was a little girl, we had a, a sort of a traditional herbaceous border in the garden. So when I was about five or six, I used to help my mum in the garden. And I loved the scent of the pinks when they came into flower in the summer. And I think that is stuck with me all my life. And I do love scented plants. And if they have any kind of similar scent to a pink, it just takes me back to my childhood and that garden. At the moment, my favourite thing, the thing I'm looking forward to seeing is a honeysuckle called Lanisra calcarata, which was given to me by Roy Lancaster as a rooted cutting. It's a quite a rare thing, and I'm lucky enough to have a plant of it. And mine's grown really, really well in the last year. Last year's summer heat ripened the wood really well, and so there's loads of flower buds appearing on it, and I can't wait to see them open. The May issue, we've just literally sent that off in the last few days. We've got this incredible garden on the... Um... Normandy coast of France. Got loads of sculpture in it and it's quite an unusual cliff-top location. It's quite an interesting place. There isn't anything quite like it. I only ask readers to wait and see. Has being in lockdown changed the way you garden? 
Well, for me, it certainly has, because it's enforced the fact that I've got to be here. But for anybody who's read the magazine over the last few years will probably know that I've got a bit of a project on my hands. We moved to this house and garden about four years ago, and boy, does this garden exhaust you. It's really steep, really overgrown. So for me, being here much more has meant that I'm actually, at last beginning to finish some projects and my wife has been venturing out as well and helping me obviously the children haven't because that's really boring but I've been managing to get out there and just grab the odd hour here or there so I've been doing things that normally get forgotten such as splitting and dividing some geraniums I've had or begonias or hostas I don't know if you're like me and you just keep on buying plants and you keep on leaving them by your back door and you never get round to planting them. So I've actually been on a planting spree, and the other day I managed to get rid of about 15, 20 pots worth of plants that I've had in the last year, two, three, maybe four years, don't tell my wife, of plants just hanging around, and I've actually got them into the ground. But I am incredibly grateful that grabbing the odd half an hour or hour here or there in the garden allows me some time away, gets me to be quite reflective but gets me in tune with the season and with nature and with gardens and at this time that is just so important i'd love to hear your thoughts find the rhs on social media and tag your posts with the hashtag rhs podcast and why not visit rhs.org.uk forward slash the garden podcast to find out more about what we've discussed today next month we'll preview june's edition of the magazine We've got some great features already in there, from big leaf plants to a garden review all about Morton Hall, from another garden that's been inspired by Morocco, to some of the best herb tastes you can get. So there should be plenty in it. But until then, from me, Chris Young, goodbye, and thanks for listening.